Turn with me your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Kids, and the Bibles that we have uh, given you, or if you've got a Bible on the back table, can be found on page 554. We'll be in the whole chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <clears throat> Life isn't as tidy as we'd like it to be. I had lunch with a, uh, a friend recently I hadn't seen in a long time, and he was telling me that, well, me and my wife, we decided with technology and with um, medicine these days, you could live a long time. So we've set out to eat and to exercise so that we can live to 125. And I listened to it and it seemed to have a sense of wisdom to him, you know, and life is not a deal where you can input this and you're guaranteed an output. Life is confusing. There are no guarantees in this life. As I look around the room, it is clear in every one of your lives, you could Tell me time after time, there are no guarantees in this life. As I've thought about the passage this week, studied it, my mind has gone back to Heather's grandfather's modest river house that he had in Wimberley. And we would spend, our, we'd spend a, a week or two there in the summer and our mind would think about how this is going to be our home base for for summers and for the coming generations and how everything you know we just we imagined what it would be like being being able to go there for decade upon decade until a 50-foot wall of water comes barreling down the Blanco River and destroys it well we hurried down there and we cleaned it up and we swept it out and we ripped everything out and we dried it out and mucked it out and then our minds immediately went to okay how can we how can we rebuild this how can we make it something that we can use again and enjoy so that we can carry on the tradition and we would bump up against problem after problem and we're floating in the river later on and you look over to the side and you see gigantic centuries old cypress trees that once lined the river laying on their side with 15 foot root balls in the air and you realize it didn't just happen to a house it didn't just happen to our neighbors it didn't just happen to the families that lost lives in this it happened to God's creation. This wasn't an error of man. This was something that God allowed in his providence to happen. And so at that moment, as I looked at what used to be cypress trees towering over, the, shading the river, now it's just burning hot and you see these sad trees laying over on their side. I thought of this passage. It's a time, there's a time to plant. And then there's a time to pluck up what is planted. 
and lay it down on its side. If I had to sum up this passage, it would be this chapter, it would be that the world is a confusing place. So fear God and trust in his providence. That'll be our, those will be our points for this passage. In verses 1 through 11, the world is a confusing place. And in verses 12 through 22, so fear God and trust in his providence. Let's begin reading in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. This is God's word. For everything there is a season, in a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, in a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, in a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is God's word. So if we look at the poem, again, our first point is the world is a confusing place. If we look at the if we look at this poem, it has some similarities to the one we saw in chapter one. We have some noticeable repetition to it. It's um, while we have this repetition, it's hard to kind of. Um, discern any order to the presentation that we see here. Of course, it starts with a time to be born and a time to die. So you think, okay, that's the beginning of life. But then it kind of jumbles all together. And so we, we can't really see a specific order to it. If we were going to try to learn some something from the structure of this poem, though, I would think that it would be found in these 28 references to time you see these a time to these these one line um, um, phrases that are put in opposition to one another a time to be born a time to die and so you have these 14 lines of a time to do this and a time to do that and those 14 seem to be coupled and so the second one kind of enhances, magnifies, or explains the first one. So like a time to be born and a time to die. And then the next one, a time to plant, 
which is kind of like being born and a time to pluck up what is planted, which is kind of like dying. So you see these, these explanations or magnifications. And so that leaves you with seven pairs. And so, especially in, uh, in the uh, Old Testament, we see seven as this number of completeness, this number of perfection. And so it's as if the author is saying, the preacher is saying, if you want... If you want completeness in life, if you want to have a tidy life, if you want to have something wrapped up, this is it. This is life and perfection right here. But this is not a perfect life, right? This is a lot of ups and a lot of downs. This doesn't just refer to a few moments in life. In verse 1, the preacher says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. So this applies to all of life. And so in verses 2 through 8, he elaborates on the everything and the every matter he mentions in verse 1. So keeping that in mind as we unpack these verses in 2 through 8, what are we to learn from the times? I would say the first thing we learn from the times is that we don't have much input into the times. I don't know about you, but I didn't have much say in when I was born. Did you, Caroline? I didn't even know it was happening to me. All of a sudden, it's just thrust upon me. Okay, here I am. We have very little input on when we die or in the season in which we die. Sure, some may have more control or more notice than others. But naturally, the time to die is beyond our control. We don't have any input on the time to plant or the time to pluck up. Say, well, sure we do. You can plant any time. Well, yeah, but if you want a pro- if you want a crop, There are given times, there are given seasons that you have to do this. You can plant in the dead of winter, but don't, you know that nothing's going to come up. We also know that the harvest time isn't up to us. You say, well, sure it is. You can plow your corn under if you want to do that. But if we want a fruitful harvest, we have to do it within the appointed times. We don't choose the time to weep or mourn. If we did, we never would. These are times that are thrust upon us. We have very little choice in the matter. We can't control it or regulate who or when we'll be weeping or mourning. It's a response. It's a response to the times that we find ourselves in. Also, we learn from this passage that we see a lot of the times, a lot of the times of life relate to our relationships with others and the difficulties therein. Relationships can be messy. We see a time to tear and a time to sew. This refers to the ancient practice of tearing a garment, tearing a garment to express sorrow or anguish or disappointment with a loved one. Or mourning because of a situation with a loved one. And once the period of mourning was over, they were called to sew their garments back together and move on. 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There are times as a parent or a spouse when you comfort right away with an embrace, right? But there are other times you send your child to their room and you refrain from embracing. You allow them to think about it for a while before you restore them with an embrace. A time to love and a time to hate. We see in scripture that while we're called to love our enemies, in the Psalms we see several instances where we're called to hate those who are enemies to God. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Psalm 139.21, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Do I not despise those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. But we see in the New Testament that sometimes hate is meant in comparison to our love for God. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother, or wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we love our families, but there comes a time when we must prioritize our love for God more than we love our own lives or love our families so much that it looks like hate. There's a time to prioritize our love for God over our love for our loved ones or even our own lives. There are times to kill as in war. And there are times to heal. There are times to put conflict behind us and move on. There's times to punish. And there's times to forgive. Also, we see in this poem that there are times for gathering possessions together and there are times for giving them away. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Thinking of Jonah on the ship to Tarshish. There was a cargo ship. They were, they were called to carry the, the, those, um, the people, those sailors were called to carry that cargo to Tarshish. But the situation got so rough because of Jonah's disobedience to the Lord that everything they're hired to to take, to, to carry to Tarshish, they throw overboard to make sure that they can survive. And so there was a time to cast away. There was a time to loosen them themselves from what burdened them so that they could not sink. And then they ultimately had to cast away Jonah. They had to throw him over. And so they're calling out to the Lord, asking for help and forgiveness for doing this thing that Jonah's told them to do. So, it's often not clear when it's a time to do one thing or to do another. We have many conversations and many prayers revolve around this issue. How do I know when to hold on to something? How do I know when to let it go? How do I know when to pursue something? How do I know when to seek something? How do I know when to give it up? Which leads to the last thing I'd like to point out in this poem and that is there's just a lot of uncertainty and confusion in life we don't know what's good I think the preacher's um, um, pattern highlights this when you first look at it you think okay there's good thing followed by bad thing good thing then followed by bad thing good thing followed by bad thing 
But in verse 2, it's good thing, bad thing, good thing, bad thing. But in verse 3, it's bad thing, good thing, bad thing, good thing, bad thing, good thing. You say, oh, there's an order to it. No, there's not. There's three in a row. And then it goes back to good thing, bad thing. And so we, we fall into a pattern and then we go, oh, no, it's different. But then sometimes we just don't know if it's good or bad. If you look at verse 5. There's a time to cast away stones. There's a time to gather stones together. If you, in, 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 first, in uh, 2 Kings 3, 19 and 25, the Lord tells Israel to throw stones onto a field, to ruin it, to keep it from being cultivated. So they throw thousands and thousands of stones into this field as an act of destruction. But in Isaiah 62, 10, Israel is called to cast away stones to, to clear the road, to make way for a conqueror. So casting stones in one verse is an act of warfare, while casting stones in the other is an act of surrender. Gathering stones together could be an act of gathering ammunition to inflict punishment, to stone someone. But gathering stones could also be called to prepare a field for cultivation. To protect from erosion, to, to irrigate, or to set up a, a wall to protect the field. So which is it? It's true of both meanings. You can't decide until you know the situation you find yourself in, and then it will be revealed to you. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. Which is better? It depends. Job's friends did the right thing when they just sat next to Job for a week and didn't say a word. God only found fault with them when they tried to help and open their mouths. In our lives, we often don't know when it's the right time to speak and when the right time is to keep quiet. Unfortunately, it often reveals itself after we've either been quiet or spoken and often wrong. In Acts 18, the Lord told Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Yet Jesus is silent before his accusers. So given the things we see here, the question that the preacher asks in verse 9 is a good one. So what gain has the worker from all his toil? Every one of these times we see here, or in opposition to one another. That's why times are so confusing because we like to think that we're making progress in life. Or at the very least that God is heading, heading us toward a goal. But we don't sense the goal at all if we look at our lives most of the time. All we see is perceived progresses followed by perceived setbacks. So we think, okay, what do we do wrong? How can I learn from this so I can do it right the next time so I won't suffer loss? Where was the error? Obviously, God gave us this thing to accomplish and we screwed it up. So how can we be more in tune with God next time to keep from having this happen? But verse 10 shows us that this is the business that God has given man. 
The doing and undoing is God's design. Which doesn't make sense. Psalm 33, 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So does this mean that God just spends all his time knocking down our sandcastles and moving the goalposts in life so that we never accomplish anything that we feel like he's led us to do? No, verse 11 tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a perfect purpose in all that God has done. And by extension, there's a perfect purpose in all that we do. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So what do we make of that verse we just read in Psalm 33 that he frustrates the plans of the peoples? Verse 11 says that we get frustrated because... God has put eternity in the hearts of men. We all want to do something lasting. Which is what the preacher was after in chapter 2, right? We want a legacy. We want to make a mark. We want something to endure. We want to endure. Kings want to build kingdoms. And people want to invest in something that's solid. Something that stands the test of time. But the frustration comes because there's a time for building and there's a time for breaking down. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. We as Christians do this too. We want to be a part of something that lasts. We long for eternality. So we want to join God in his work, as Henry Blackaby famously said in his book, Experiencing God. Well, one problem with this is that we want to join him in building. We don't want to join him in tearing down. We don't want to say we want to join God in his silence. No one ever says that. The other problem with wanting to join God in his work is because we see here, we cannot find out what God is doing nor has done from beginning to end. So we don't really know what God is up to. We aren't wrong to want to do something that lasts. We aren't wrong to want to live forever. God has put that sense of eternity into our hearts. But he's done it in such a way that we aren't given insight into what he's doing day to day. So how should we live? Should we just take a fatalistic view of life and quit? What do we do with this sense of eternity that God has put in us? Did he do it just to mock us? Given that even though we have this God-giving longing for eternity, the experience of life is a confusing one. It's confusing because of ups and downs and doings and undoings of progresses and setbacks. We know that God is behind it all. So how should we live? This is our second point. We should fear God and trust in his providence. Let's begin reading in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So we've already seen uh, last week that nothing lasts. And we can't really determine in the micro what God is doing from day to day. But that doesn't mean that there's no purpose to life, nor does it mean that there's no fulfillment in life. Instead, we turn to this familiar passage that we first encountered last week in chapter 2, verse 24, but we see it again today in 3, 12, and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So we're to be joyful. We're to be thankful and find pleasure in whatever God puts our hand to do. So how am I to be joyful and thankful when I'm in mourning? We can be joyful and thankful for the gifts and the experiences that we've been given. We can remind ourselves that these are the times and seasons of life. When we're in the midst of the times of dancing, we can remind ourselves that one day, the very one we're dancing with, we may be mourning over. And vice versa. We know that though we're sorrowful at the moment, we know that one day, God tells us that laughter will return. Or even at the most basic level, we can be joyful and thank God in the midst of sorrow as God grants sleep so that we can turn off our minds and our tears for even a moment and enjoy the, the gift of rest and restoration that God provides as he sustains the universe while he graciously grants us even just a few hours respite from sorrow. This realization regarding the times and seasons of life helps us to temper our reliance upon joy. 
As we thought about last week, there's no surplus of joy that's available to us, only to, to what we're given in the moment. And so this keeps us from having what some people call um, an over-realized eschatology, which is the hope of that Christians are promised from the Lord. We, we try to drag that down and is, expect to experience it here on earth. But we aren't going to have that eternal hope here in a finite world. But that doesn't mean that we don't have joy here. The preacher tells us how to have joy. Be joyful. Do good. Eat and drink and take pleasure in the work. But how do we know what's good? We've just talked about this poem. How do we know what's good if we can't find out what God's doing according to verse 11? If we can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, how do we know what's good? Well, God is a good God who has shown us how to live. He's given us his law. He's given us his law that we should obey. He didn't give us his law so that we could get to heaven. Because if he did, he failed. Because none of us have obeyed the law. He didn't give us his law so that we may be successful. Because if he did, we failed. Because there sure have been a lot of people killed or oppressed or opposed or marginalized for believing and obeying God's law. No, he gave us his law for our joy. He gave us his law for our benefit, for his glory. He gave us his law so that we may joyfully reflect his character and make his glory known throughout creation. Obedience to God's law is good for us. This is the good life. And as we considered last week in Matthew 6, when we obey, when we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, we enjoy his sustaining grace. He provides what we need. Uh, he provides our food. He provides our drink. He provides our clothes. He provides our shelter. He, he provides everything we need for life and godliness. And he provides so generously and abundantly so that we can take pleasure even as his, in his sustaining grace. But this is where we can get sideways with God's law because we wrongly think that we know what God may be doing in a specific situation. And so we perceive that maybe there's a better or a more efficient way to go about accomplishing God's ends. And so we don't do it God's prescribed way and instead we seek to pragmatically do it more efficiently so that we can get where we believe that God is going. But this text shows us that life is filled with undoing what's been done. This life is filled with things that don't make sense in a world of pragmatism. God doesn't call us to success. God calls us to obedience and finding our joy in him. But while from this side of things we see a step forward and then a step backward and see, see a, a doing and undoing, we do know that God has a plan for redemption. The Bible is filled with this. We know that he is moving towards a goal. Even though we don't know what he's doing in the moment, we see the big picture. And the preacher sees it too verse, in verse 14. 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God is at work in every single thing. There are no advancements or retreats. There are no progresses or progresses or setbacks. All is done according to God's eternal plan. In God, there are no competing or opposing interests in God's work. All things work together for his glory. So God's purposes are realized in times of weeping just as much as in times of laughing. God's purposes are progressing in the times of tearing down as much as they're progressing in the times of building up. We don't see that from our perspective. So we have our own notions of progress and achievement. So we veer away from threats to our work. We steer clear of setbacks. We pray against our plans being altered. How would our prayers change if we realize change if we realize that God is behind all of it. God is behind our struggles. God is behind our confusion. God is behind our sorrow. That God is behind our disagreement. That God is behind our embarrassment. That God is behind our humiliation. And that God is using all of it for his glory and for his purposes. The preacher says that God has ordered all things in this way so that people may fear him. Verse 14 God has done it so that people fear before him. So that people may have reverence and awe for him, as we read in our New Testament reading. To realize that he is over all things and he prescribes and ordains the times and the seasons for everything and everyone. He is outside of time and he is not affected by it. To see God, we use, God uses these experiences to see God as an all-wise and an all-good God. So we can lay aside our best ideas of what's right and seek his ways and trust in them even if we can't see them. And we learn to, to, to glorify him by preferring his ways over our own ways. Even if at times they are detrimental to our health or our happiness or contrary to our, our ideas of good or personal preference. I'm thinking of Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, where he says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is how God is, is glorifying himself. This is how we learn to fear him. As we see God over all these things and we see him sustaining us through him, we're able to choose his ways over our own. We can see that it's God's world and we're just living in it. I'm thinking of Acts 17.26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Knowing that God orders things in this way keeps us from using God as a 
lucky rabbit's foot and keeps us from co-opting God for our own purposes. As we see in verse 15, this gives us confidence and trust in the Lord because we are experiencing all that's been seen. All, uh, we, what we are experiencing has all been seen before. There's nothing new under the sun. So while the feeling or the, or, uh, or the trial that we're experiencing may be new to us, may be novel to us, we know that it's not the, new to the human experience. And somehow we can find comfort from the Lord in this instance. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, where we, which we'll think about more next week, Lord willing, um, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we can trust in God's providence because he's comforting us every step of the way as we go, I don't understand what's going on here, but I'm trusting you. And we find him comforting us and caring for us and leading us. So even in this unspeakable, unthinkable time of trial that we may find ourselves in, through that experience, we come to know the Lord in a deeper, different way, which leads us to greater praise and a greater reverence and awe of him. So God's providence is working all things for us and for his glory. But the preacher sees a problem in verse 16. If there's a time and a purpose for all things in this life and God is bringing glory to himself so that people will fear and revere him, then what about all this wickedness? Why, why do we see this wickedness? How is an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly righteous God getting glory when wicked people at every turn are thumbing their nose at him, shaking their fist and openly mocking him, even in, in places of justice and places of righteousness, why do we see all this wickedness in our world, in the place of justice, in courts, in halls of government that are instituted for the purpose of ensuring justice for all people? Why do we see wickedness there? Or in our world, in the place of righteousness, in churches and in religious leaders who are supposed to be shepherds of God's people. We see wickedness of sexual immorality and fleecing the flock of their money and resources, using their positions for political or for personal gain. How is God glorified in that? The preacher gives us the answer in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. We will all be judged. And just as there, a time, there, just as there is a time for every matter and every work under the sun, there will also be a time of judgment for every one of those matters and every one of those works done under the sun. So if you've been robbed or wronged, our response shouldn't be, oh, well, there's a time and season for everything. I guess it was just my turn in the barrel. God allowed it. No, instead we can say there is a time and there is a season for these things. And although they're painful, I know that I'm not the first to deal with this. Nor am I the last. And just as God has comforted them in their time of grief, 
he will also comfort me in mine. And somehow this will turn out for our good. And I know that evil will one day be punished. So I entrust myself to him who judges justly for every matter and for every work. So doing this, we can live in this rhythmic pattern of life and accept not having all the answers to the times of our pain and suffering. We can rid ourselves of our misconception that we can control our lives while knowing that every time of mine even will have its day in court and it will fulfill God's purposes. In verse 18, the preacher says that this is the time of testing for the children of God. Through these experiences, we realize that we are not many gods, like little gods, not plurality, little gods, but we're creatures. Man and beast are both created. Under the sun, both of them end up in the same place, the ground. This is the end of man, both rich and poor. The black, the brown, the white, the Christian, the non-Christian, the president, the office worker, we all have the same end. Like at the end of a game of chess, the queen and the pawn, the bishop and the rook, no matter how powerful they all are on the board, they all end up in the same box. As the squirrel in the middle of the, road, middle of the street met his end, so we also, every one of us, will meet ours. One has no advantage over the other. All are from dust, and to dust all will return. Yes, but what about death? What do we make of this, what the preacher says in verse 21? This is alarming to us. Who knows where the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? This is more than a do all dogs go to heaven question. This, is, this seems like the preacher's asking, who knows whether there's life after death? I don't know. But if we look at the words used in this chapter, five times he uses the word I saw or this is seen or I see this. Twice he uses the word and I perceive this, I perceive this. So the preacher is telling us in this chapter what he's observed in life. What he has seen is that all die. He hasn't seen anyone raised from the dead. He hasn't seen a spirit go up. So he's like, I don't know. I've seen people die, but I haven't seen people raised. So what can be observed in this life under the sun? That is what I'm sure of. But in verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 7, he does say that the spirit returns to God who gave it. And in our passage here, he's confident that the righteous and the wicked will be judged. And so he's, he's got some, he's got a sin. He understands that there is life after this. But what he's saying is if we're looking at in life under the sun, what's best to do? There's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work and because he can't see anything beyond this. This is all he's, that's observable. So as commentator Zach Eswine says, 
Time in God's hands graciously apprentices us. He's teaching us in every moment that we have. This is his creation. This is not our creation. There is a time for everything under the sun. There are some breathtaking highs and there are some heart-stopping lows. And God uses it and orders it for his glory and for our good. Now, God may not have told God may not have told us what he's doing in every single instance. And while there's much to learn from the preacher in his wisdom, we can be more certain than he is because we have a better sense. We have a better knowledge of the history of redemption than even the preacher does. We have the benefit of the prophets who prophesied that God would redeem his people. And we've seen God's faithfulness while his people have been faithless. We've seen his promises answered and realized only to be reminded of the cycle of life and history where more perfect fulfillments to those promises, same promises will be realized later on. We've seen futility created by man's sin and disobedience and the promise of God's mercy brought to an apparent stalemate because of God's also promise of justice and righteousness and wrath. So we seem to be trapped in this eternal cycle that we, of futility that we can't escape. But God has not left the Bible reader without hope. He has not left us uninformed in our confusing times that we find ourselves in. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of man, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So while our earthly end may be the same as all creation, our standing and our relationship with our creator is much different than the rest of creation. And this one who came, Jesus Christ, is fully aware of what, of what God is doing from beginning to end, for he is God who stood before time began and who created all things. This Jesus began his earthly ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Yes, Jesus knows the times and the seasons. And he told his disciples the night before he was crucified, my time is at hand. The time for him to give his life for the forgiveness of your sins. And he told his disciples that even though he was going to be betrayed and crucified, there will be a time in the future that he will drink of the fruit of the vine once again with them in the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus died at the appointed time. And he was raised from the dead. And his disciples asked, will this be the time that you restore the kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Jesus told them that that was fixed by the father, by his own authority. And as Jesus went up into heaven, and the angels told him, why do you stand there? They told the disciples, why do you stand there looking up into heaven? He will come again the same way that he came down. So there was a time for Jesus' ascension 
And there will be a time you can be assured for his return. So what do we do to his return? We rejoice in the work that God has called us to do. Whether it be in vocation, in life, in family, wherever it is, proclaiming this gospel and teaching and encouraging others to obey all that Christ has commanded us. And while we have never seen someone raised from the grave, we know that Christ has been raised from the grave. So because he has been raised, we can trust in his providence in all circumstances that know, knowing that whoever is trusting in Christ will also participate in his resurrection. To having heard all this, what will we do? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, working together with God, then we appeal to you not to receive this grace which you have heard today in vain. For God says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of your salvation. Today is the day to lay aside your fu the futility of your earthly uh, pursuits and follow the gospel. Trust in the Lord who stands over, who rules over, who created and ordains all time. Yes, this life is lived that's lived under the sun is vanity. For those who seek to find their fulfillment in life apart from God, they will find this a futile exercise. But for you, my beloved brothers and sisters, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and share in his death and resurrection, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor in this life is not in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you that you have allowed us to contemplate the times and the seasons of life. We thank you that you are not bound by time. We thank you that you have given us futility in this life so that we may not put too much hope or trust in it. But Lord, we pray that you would lift our faces to you and we would find our hope in our fulfillment, and our joy in you and you alone. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.